Chris Burns. Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Welcome, everyone, to the Playground Podcast. This is our social distancing episode. Uh, we are 50 blocks away rather than across the table, as usual. Uh, but we're pressing on, as is the toy industry. Yeah, these are uh, weird times for us <laughs> and all of you. But yet, we continue. Uh, and uh, today, uh, despite the coronavirus and other concerns, we uh, Life goes on and the toy industry goes on. And we're going to be talking to uh, one of the, I, I think, uh, the, the real uh, heroes of the toy industry. That's Ernie Rubin. He's an icon. <laughs> the icon. And, and uh, the uh, former uh, CEO of Funrise. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to you and I getting into it a little bit with him and, and hearing what uh, Ernie has to say. Well, we've talked to him about about the coronavirus. Of course, everybody's sort of up in the air. We really don't know what's next, but we've got some great information about his history and some real insights into a couple of issues that are affecting the industry right now. Let's get into it. We're even further social distancing. Arnie Rubin is with us from Park City, Utah. Arnie, how you doing? I'm doing well, uh, trying to stay well, uh, working at it. Yeah, as, as we are, uh, sir. Uh, just real quickly, um, Arnie Rubin uh, is the founder of Funrise Toys, one of the top toy companies uh, in our industry. Now resides in uh, Park City, Utah, and uh, had a, uh, a really fascinating career in the toy industry. We're going to talk about that, some of that today. Uh, but I've known Arnie for a number of years, as has Chris. And I just wanted to say, and I've, I've, I, of anybody in the toy industry, I, I think you have one of the few people who have combined both being respected and loved by people. <laughs> and uh, in any walk of life, that's pretty tough. And in this industry, it's even tougher. Well, I appreciate that, Richard. Thank you. So, Arnie, uh, these are interesting times, <laughs> as that Chinese curse goes. Um what do you what are you making of the current situation, and, and, and what do you think uh, the path forward is for the toy industry? You know that that's a tough one. What's the what's the path forward for 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 this country and the economy in general? Right. Okay. Things are changing so fast. We just attended Toy Fair and, and the Toady Awards, and we were talking about this being an issue uh, seven thousand miles away, and all of a sudden it's an issue in our backyard or in our or in our homes. And it's really hard to figure what, what, what's going to happen and what the future certainly for this year is for the toy industry and even for years forward. This is really uh, this is a one-of-a-kind event. Ernie, is there anything in, in your career history, uh, whether it was 9-11 or the Great Recession or uh, uh, anything else I'm not thinking of right now that, that comes to mind for you that could be a comparable? You think this is really a black swan? No, I, I, you know, I, I, I spent 52 years in the in the toy industry, and nothing uh, comes close to what we're experiencing right now. Uh, 9/11, uh, 9/11 was shocking and a catastrophic event, but it happened, and we healed, and it passed. Right now, we're looking at something that that doesn't have a uh, an end in sight. As a matter of fact, things are, are still scaling up as far as. Are, uh, the, the number of cases and the number of deaths, and then the, the psychological effect on this country, I think, is, is is just hard to calculate. It's tough for this country, and it's and it's tough for really the global toy industry. Uh, if I was Hong Kong, I would feel like I was in a tag team wrestling match, and it was, <laughs> I was in the corner, and these two guys were just working me over. I mean, between uh, 
the threat of the tariffs and then the riots, now uh, coronavirus, Hong Kong has just really gone through it. Yeah, it, it, it's been an incredible uh, series of events. And again, the, the, the tariffs was something you could, you, you, you could calculate and adjust your pricing. Uh, the riots, well, you could, you, you could buy remotely and not meet in Hong Kong. This, this is a one-of-a-kind event that uh, I, you know, we're just going to have to see day by day what events take toll on this industry and this well, country. If, if you were the CEO of uh, Funrise at this time, what do you think sort of things you would be looking at in terms of uh, strategy uh, to get you through and now and, and after? That, that, that's a great question. Uh, fortunately, I don't, have to, I don't have to come up with that decision. What's happening to the retail environment? People are being told not to leave their homes only for, uh, for shopping for uh, necessities like food and, and, and pharmaceuticals. So what does that mean to people shopping for the holidays going forward? Uh, it's just really hard to calculate that. Even buying online has become cumbersome because they're being overburdened. Uh, the, the largest uh, uh, online retailer, Amazon, is trying to hire 100,000 people because they're also being slumped. Uh, people don't want to leave their homes. So this is just so different than anything else I've ever encountered. And I'm certain that every other CEO in the toy industry has ever encountered. So trying to come up with a strategy for a, a problem we've never encountered before is really a difficult call. Right. And this is just this morning. Uh, this is March 18th when we're talking with you, Arnie. Um, just this morning, Amazon announced that they were pulling back on deliveries of anything that was non-essential. And that included toys in their in their list. So so it's going to be food and uh, medical supplies and and really what they're deeming essential. So that means that even parents at home who think, oh, it'd be great to get a game or something new for the kids while we're stuck at home. They're not going to be able to do it through Amazon, at least for the foreseeable future. There's an opportunity for uh, other uh, e-commerce providers because I think that toys in a time like this for a child are a pretty essential uh, product. Granted, they're not medicine, but they're pretty essential. But but Arnie, let's uh, let's move a little bit to the Arnie Rubin story. Can you Can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in this business and uh, how you came to be loved and <laughs> respected. Uh, well, if I knew the answer on how to you, you become loved, you know, I could probably make a lot, I would have made a lot more money than in the toy industry. You'd be president. But, <laughs> you'd be president. <laughs> well, you know, I started, I started way back uh, while I was in high school. I had a part-time job going after school, working for a company by the name of chemical sundries or ChemToy, as the future name would be known, and their 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 basic product was uh, liquid soap bubbles. And back in the in the late '60s and and uh, early '70s, uh, uh, soap bubbles were still bottled in glass jars. <laughs> uh, and and in my first job was was uh, after school was taking the bus to downtown LA to their to their factory and unloading boxcars of four and eight ounce jars that came in uh, from Chicago from uh, from Anchor Hawking and they would use to be bottled soap bubbles. So that was my, my first entry into the industry. And I ended up working with uh, a, a brother-in-law at the time, Fred Court. Somebody came to us with a, a, a kooky little ball that was made in Japan uh, that bounced really high. And we said, God, this would be fun. We could sell these 
uh, at retail. They were big at that time being sold in vending machines. And that was the, the founding of Imperial Toy. And uh, I founded uh, with Fred Court. The two of us founded Imperial Toy back in 1969 uh, and, and, and built that from uh, uh, selling a, a 10 cent retail Super Bowl uh, to, to a, a pretty substantial company. And I sold out to Fred in 1987 and, 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 uh, founded Funrise. And, and Arnie, how old were you, uh, when you founded Imperial Toy? I was uh, the ripe old age of 22. Wow. wow. You were a young man. Well, you know, you don't, you don't have a lot to uh, worry about. You can put a lot at risk when you're 22. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, I took, uh, all of my bar mitzvah money and invested in, <laughs> Uh, in, in what became Imperial Toy. That's amazing. Wow. <laughs> Imperial Toy just was recently sold, weren't they? Well, you know, they were sold, and yeah, I, I, you know, as, as times went on, it, the company got sold, and and I know that they've had some rough times. But it, we we built it into a pretty successful uh, company. It was a successful company for fifty years. And then you founded Funrise, as you said. So between Imperial Toy and Funrise, you 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 founded two major American toy companies. Well, uh, so, sometimes my mother said it's better to be lucky than smart. Uh, <laughs> we were we were very fortunate uh, with the start of Imperial, and and those years, uh, twenty two years of of, uh, of experience, gave me the background of when I started Funrise. I knew of the way I wanted to run a company as compared to the way. Uh, other people ran toy companies, or my ex-partner ran, you know, managed uh-huh. a toy company. Building a, uh, an incredible staff was was uh, one of my goals. People that would do a great job, and they would be rewarded for their efforts. And when the company was successful, uh, uh, letting them share in the success. And that uh, that was the founding and and the, the legacy of Funrise for my entire tenure there. You also took a lot of your experience from Imperial with uh, with Bubbles, and. Uh really did, I mean, with gazillion bubbles and, and turned that into into a juggernaut, one of my favorite words, or a tremendous brand uh, in the toy industry. It was an interesting challenge because liquid soap bubbles have always been a great toy. If you watch a two-year-old or a three-year-old react to them, they're magic. And But the problem was they've been commodified to where uh, there, there was no branding and there was nothing special about it. And the philosophy with Gazillion was to create as, uh, the best product we could, give it give it an identity, uh, give it uh, trademark colors and a bottle. The the proof was that the consumer is willing to pay a much higher price than than uh, the existing product, but we gave them great quality and we gave them a great experience. The tagline for a long time is you'd run out of breath before you'd run out of bubbles. We it made a lot of bubbles, <laughs> made them, uh, very colorful bubbles, and uh, it, w- it was a wonderful. Uh, it was a wonderful experiment and worked. Uh, Ernie, I just want to go back for a minute. I think you said something very significant. You know, we, we talked about you being loved. And I, I know that's uncomfortable to, to hear a compliment like that, but I think it's very important in understanding you and what you did. And, and I, it really strikes me that the first thing you said was that in starting Fundrise, you wanted it was about people and it was the type of people you're going to surround yourself with. Uh, and, and do you think that, that piece that that you wanted to differentiate your company by by being um, very much about the people who work there, do you feel that's a big part of your success and and maybe why people see you as highly empathic? Well, Richard, all all I know is that 
uh, it, he, it doesn't take long to learn that you're a single body. And in order to, to, to have a successful enterprise, you need people that you can trust and people who uh, have a love for the business. And if you don't treat people uh, in the proper manner, they're, they're, they get up every morning, come to work looking for their next job. Right. So it was, it was my philosophy from the very beginning to, to hopefully find the right type of people. And if I found the right type of people, make sure they stayed with me. And the proof is, uh, I guess, was in the pudding, the, the fact that uh, we had many plaques around our office that showed 20 years with the company. And when I left the company, Shirley Price, who was one of my prize hires, uh, and, and I treated like a member of my family, uh, was with me for 30 years. And, uh, you know, that's not necessarily a millennial philosophy of staying with a company long term. But for me, it was so important to have people that knew what they were doing, spent enough time to get where we spent enough time together where our decision making process would would be the same, whether we were together or apart. And it worked for me. Now, other people may have different philosophies on the value of your people, but that's one that worked for me my entire career. I think that's true. One of my early mentors in the promotion business said to me, your business goes up and down in your elevator every day. And uh, that was New York City, of course. But but what he was <laughs> what he was meaning was that your people are your business and that, you know, with your people willing to pull with you through rough times and celebrate the great times. Uh, that's really the strength of a company. We also had a philosophy of how we how professional we wanted to treat our customers. When they had a problem, we would address it. There were no promises we made that we couldn't that we couldn't live up to. And again, it worked. That doesn't mean that other people don't have very successful companies with another philosophy, but I knew it worked for me. Ernie, um, you once told me a story how you came up with the name Funrise, F-U-N-R-I-S-E. Uh, can you recount that for people listening in? Well, it wasn't really scientific. I think my 13-year-old came up with the name. Uh, <laughs> That's very sweet. The so, target audience. Know, <laughs> so he, 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 we, were, we were trying to come up with names, and it's, not, it's, it's very difficult to find a name that somebody hasn't trademarked already. Right. And uh, uh, we were talking about Sunrise, and my son said, how about Funrise? And boy, <laughs> I, I paid for his college education for that. <laughs> <laughs> what were some of the early toys that Funrise uh, came out with? A lot of them weren't really uh, uh, very sexy. We, we did collectible farm animals and zoo animals. We, we did... Uh, uh, one of our most successful uh, lines, where it's also in mini vehicles or micro vehicles. That was the, the first real product line that, that uh, we had a home run with. And over the years, and then the, the biggest home run, it was putting lights and sound into vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were one of the innovators in that. And when little integrated circuits or sound chips became available, we came up with the idea of what if we put it into a, a toy an emergency vehicle like a police car or a fire engine where sirens went off and, and lights went off. And that truly was the, uh, the product line that set the, set the company on a, a very successful path. Well, what was your role, Arnie? Were you, the, were you the product guy? Were you the operations guy? Were you the marketing guy? Well, you know, when, you, when you're running a, a, a small company, you're every guy. You're every guy. <laughs> you're every guy. You know, you're also the guy that makes sure that there's fresh toilet paper in the, in the restrooms. Right. Uh, you, Which you may be hard everything. to do right now. 
which is quite a task these days, uh, currently. They're going to bring you <laughs> out of retirement I, to do that. <laughs> that's right. No, I, I was involved in, in, in most aspects in the early uh, starting of the business, very much involved with our guys in product development, uh, very much involved in the marketing, very much involved in package design, and we did it as a team effort. Uh, everybody was able to do everybody else's job. What, what did you love to do? I'd love to sell. It was always great to create product, but it was greater to feeling the success of, of, of making a sale. Uh-huh. That, was, that was the conquering event, is that you, you showed the product that you'd created, and you got people to accept it and put it on shelf. And then even greater than that was if it worked on shelf, that was the real, that was the real sugar high. And really creating those toys that kids love and remember into adulthood is really what it's all about. Absolutely. So, Arnie, we are ultimately going to get through what's going on with coronavirus. The toy industry has a history, a long history of rebounding from every challenge. I always say as long as people reproduce and buy toys, uh, we'll probably have uh, have jobs. But... Uh, there are some certain issues that are that are coming up that we had started talking to about before this happened, mostly which is uh, private label and other types of challenges to traditional toy brands. Do you want to uh, share a little bit about that, please? Well, it's obviously uh, the last person you want to compete with is is your customer, and over the last few years, it's become so prevalent that retailers are going to their own private label. And I can understand that in certain uh, commodities, but it, it, it's become more troublesome when even brands are being replaced by by a, a retailer's private label brand. Uh, you know, every every toy company puts their heart and soul in the development of product. Uh, even in you know, I'll use I'll use my history of coming up with toy vehicles, light and sound. Everything you do is is costly. Uh, a team of designers that comes up, comes up with original drawings, having model makers uh, create prototypes, uh, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on tooling, developing packaging, and, and putting a brand on it. In the case of, of my background, putting the Tonka brand on it. Right. And all of those have a value, and, and, and a toy developer and a toy company certainly is entitled to a uh, return on investment. And to see... All of the all of the work you put into a product line, from the the initial drawings to prototypes, to building tooling, to developing packaging, and then seeing it being uh, a, a retailer taking ex- your product, handing it over to a factory somewhere in Asia, China, or Vietnam, and saying, "Can you make this?" and then being replaced with almost the exact same product that all, all the product development uh, uh, cost. All, all the time and energy and effort was put in by the toy company, and then a retailer then hands it off with no development cost to a, to a, a factory over there, and then that's what ends up on shelf, and, and you're 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 banished. And then to hear sometimes, oh, that's a great product. I think I can make that myself. Is is you know yeah. is is. Horrendous. Does the creator in a case like that, you know, if, if, if you had a competitor do that, you would sue them uh, for intellectual property theft. Are toy companies' hands tied? Every single thing you need is necessarily have protection. To get a patent, you, you need, you know, new technology. But to develop a product even that's non-protectable in the classic term, 
you've still done all the work. You've still created size and, and style and colors and all the things that you do to develop a product. And then to have that hand, uh, t- taken and handed to a, a factory and say, can you make this, is, is I think is a, a terrible uh, disservice to the industry in the future. I've been to so many vendor summits and the, re- the retailer doesn't come into play. It doesn't really matter because they're all the same. You typically hear, you guys need to be creative. You guys need to be innovative. You right. need to give us fresh product. And when that's done, and then that fresh product is taken and, uh, and duplicated under a private uh, label brand, what's the impetus to create fresh, innovative product? And that's the heart and soul of the industry. Right. Do, do you feel, other than what you're talking about this today, is this a, a subject that perhaps has not been covered uh, in the toy industry? It's one of the things, as you said, nobody wants to get into a war with your customer. Right. You, 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 you know, and, and in these days, with the consolidation of retailers, there's not that many customers left. Nobody wants to you know, go toe-to-toe because you're never going to win that battle. You can argue it and say this is not the right thing and get upset. In the meantime, uh, I know very few companies who want to go ahead and uh, get into a, a litigation with a, with, with a retailer that's, uh, <laughs> because you're going to lose. Whether Even if you win, you're going to lose. Knockoffs, I'll say the word, aren't really new. But what seems to be new is that knockoffs were usually relegated to grocery stores or non-traditional toy outlets. Certainly not at, you didn't find them at Toys R Us. But that seems to be changing now as, as uh, retailers are scrambling for every single dollar they can get and every point of margin that they can possibly wring out of a product. That's true. Uh but, but there's a matter of ethics. If you put the developers of product out of business, who do you knock off? Right. Well, so, yes, that's that's axiomatic. Yes. <laughs> so, so that uh, you know, I, I, I spent a lifetime in the industry trying to be innovative, trying to get our, our design team to come up with fresh designs and, and things that would sell off the shelf. So, and, and typically, what 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 do the retailers private label? The successful items. Of course, they don't. They don't private label something that didn't work. Right. So, so that if so that if a creator creates saleable product and it's doing really well, and you brand it, and a major retailer said, "God, I've went through a million units of that. I'll just make it private label." Now you have nowhere else to go because they own the real estate. Right. So if you're banished off the shelf because you were replaced by a private-labeled product, what do you do? You're SOL. I think one of the challenges in the, in the dynamic toy industry has been shifting so much of the, the innovation and the responsibility to the manufacturers so that they need to market effectively. They're look, many are looking at selling directly, trying to circumvent these, but at the end of the day, it's going to be really rough. And that's correct, but they, they end up killing the, where, where all the innovation comes from. Most of the retailers don't have product development teams that are, will spend the time and effort. They can't. They're, they're carrying thousands and thousands of different products. Right. And, and a, a toy company like Funrise would put all its effort into its product line, thousands of hours of development and, and trial and error to make things work. And it, it, it's just, I think, a real uh, breach of ethics 
for a retailer to say, God, that really worked now, so I can do it under my own private label, and you have no choice, especially with the, with the, uh, the consolidation of, of retailers with the, the few number of, of uh, certainly big box stores there are around to, to go to, to have it being, you know, where you're, you're, you're almost afraid to, to show new product to your customer. That's true. We see things at, at Toy Fair in back rooms. We see things that are not being shown that people are trying to make sure that they get. And it's really that old fable of killing the goose that lays the golden egg. It's really yeah, so ridiculous. This, this has been a pet peeve of mine for a long time. And uh, you, know, you, you try to work around it, but it really is a struggle as uh, there are less shelves around to put product on. And, and to have uh, and to have to have the concern that it's my customer who may knock me off, so to speak. Uh, Arnie, just to go back to your beginnings for a minute, uh, there may be some folks listening who are recently gone into the business or thinking about it. Um, do you think that if you were doing what you did in 1969, do you think if you were doing that in 2020, uh, would you have been able to succeed? Is the world changed that much or is it still uh, uh, an opportunity? Well, I think there's always opportunity when you attend Toy Fair and you see all those enthusiastic faces of companies that have come up with what they think uh, uh, is phenomenal product. In many cases, it is. The, re- the reality is it's a way tougher environment than it was in 1969. One of my storylines is I used to have a, a customer list that looked like the yellow pages. Ah. It was, <laughs> right. It, you know, right. It, it was the old uh, blue and white computer paper sure. that went on three inches thick. And, and in, in recent times, I could carry my major customer list on a three-by-five card, right. only written on one side. Right. So. That, that, that loss of, of uh, the small independent stores, independent chains that had 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 stores, they're gone. And it was, uh, they died over a, you know, a long period of time. So the reality is you have more consumers and you have a lot of doors, but you have a very few number of gatekeepers. So it's, it, it is, it is, it's more difficult uh, to get incubation space to where you try it, where someone will try new product. The major retailers want stuff that's proven, and uh, they want to know what their return on investment, return to linear foot of shelf space is going to be. And it's very hard to get product on that hasn't been proven. They want us. They, everybody wants to try something that already has a, a track record. So it is more difficult, but it's certainly not impossible. Right. My my joke has always been that the retailers <laughs> go through Toy Fair and go say. I want something that's brand new, innovative, but that's exactly like this that did so well for me. Of course. Do you have a, Do you have an idea of how manufacturers can combat this? Can they reinforce their relationships with the retailers? What would be the solution for this, or is this something that people are just going to have to deal with moving forward? Well, I I I, I think it's it's a conversation that really needs to be had with. Uh, with the retailers at higher levels because it just can't continue without putting the source of great product out of business. There has to be an understanding of what, what, what's legitimate private label product and what's the kind of thing when you hear, oh, I can make that myself. That's devastating to those who spend a lot of money uh, designing and creating new items for the shelf. In, in years past, if it, was, if it was your product and you branded it and 
it, it, uh, you spent money marketing it, that the, re- that the retailers certainly weren't the ones you had to worry about. It, it might be unscrupulous competitors, right. but over the years now, it's not only do I have to worry about a competitor or, 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 or uh, someone in, in remote China knocking you off, you have to worry about, do I show this to so-and-so, and they're going to de- develop it under their own private label. And that's a significant change. That really is a significant change. And that's, and that's certainly been more and more over the last number of years. And I understand it, it's, it's trying to squeeze the last bit of margin. Uh, but in the, in the meantime, I, I don't think that uh, the originators of, of, of fresh ideas can be ignored. Ernie, if I'm remembering correctly, you came into the business just about the time that China, not Hong Kong, but China was beginning to, uh, uh, to manufacture now, actually, Toys. when I first got into the business, this goes back uh, a long time ago. We were still there; was still being a product being made in Japan, and then from Japan, Taiwan, Korea, Hong Kong, and then finally uh, uh, China. China opened up, and there was that massive exodus from other places into the great capacities in China. That was in the early '70s, as margins were being challenged and labor costs were going up. Uh, it, it was very difficult to to continue to have retail prices that worked and still manufacture in in a labor market that was expensive. So in many, many cases, it wasn't a matter of increasing margins by going overseas. It was remaining competitive. You know, mom, mom can buy a lot of things and will buy a lot of things at a $10 price point or a $20 price point. But once they hit 50, it's not a necessity. Mom will by other things. Right. And I think the toy industry was forced to keep keep price points at a reasonable level uh, to maintain volumes. And that's what happened why, as far as my history in the business, that's why going overseas became so important. Do, do you remember your first trip into China? I do. I was scared. <laughs> scared <laughs> to death. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it, it was a unique challenge. Taking a trip to Mars may have been less challenging. Uh, the so, food... So- the, 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 the surroundings, I remember traveling just a few miles on dirt roads to get from factory to factory that, that took hours and hours where you would, you would, you would drive uh, maybe a mile on, on paved road and then 10 miles on dirt road. Right. And it was truly a challenge. To say nothing of being grateful to find Western plumbing. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> you have seen a lot. So... What kind of counsel would you give folks, not, not so much about the coronavirus or any particular thing, but in general about keeping the long view, being uh, retaining a, a sense of optimism, et cetera, as, as they move forward? First of all, I think to be in the toy bus- business, you have to have uh, the proper attitude and you have to be optimistic. You know, it's amazing. Every year is a new year. And if you had a, a, a foul year last year, you look forward to the next one. But I think if there was any advice uh, I would give to anybody, it's value your people. Mm-hmm. Value the people that, that help you along the way and treat them uh, the way you'd want to be treated yourself. Arnie, um, you had mentioned earlier about um, uh, Shirley Price uh, being part of your organization and how she treated her like she was part of your family. And uh, I don't know if everybody knows, but I think Shirley Price was one of the first people you hired. And today she's the chief operating officer of the company. 
And so it would seem to me that part of the the environment that you created at Fundrise was that you nurtured careers and that people had a future there. Is that accurate? And can you share a little bit more about that? Well, I I can. And again, it's a matter of what you value. I think that a person's attitude in many cases is more valuable than a person's experience. You You can guide and you can nurture and you can train people with a great attitude. Uh, uh, conversely, if somebody's got a lot of experience and they don't have, they're not a team player, they're, they're not, uh, they don't get along well in an office, it never really worked for me. So I would say if there's anything, it's attitude over experience. And, and Shirley started, uh, didn't she, uh, administrative or something? When she uh, Shirley was my uh, uh, administrative assistant, helped me pack samples, <laughs> Uh, did, did everything, do quote sheets together. When you're a small company, you do it all together. But Shirley started right out of school, and uh, she was like a sponge. She, she <laughs> took in everything we did, and that's what uh, allowed her to be, well, first of all, not only was Shirley valuable to the Fundrise, she was, uh, I think, the first woman that was a member of the uh, executive committee on uh, for the Toy Association. Shirley's skills and the ability for her to, to learn and willingness to learn put her in a position where she was a phenomenal executive and a great person overall. Arnie Rubin, thank you so much for spending some time with Chris and I today. It's, it's just a real pleasure. Uh, we've well, loved- my pleasure. Uh, thank you guys for having me on. We've loved having you. This is the Playground Podcast from our secret undisclosed locations. And <laughs> stay tuned and we'll try to have more episodes coming up. Thanks for listening. <laughs>